old pilot's plain tales. Ramstein Flugtag 1988. A word of caution. Descriptions in this story are vivid and may not be suitable for a younger audience. A little over 31 years ago, it was a hot and sunny day at the United States Air Force Base at Ramstein, near Kaiserslautern in West Germany. A perfect day for their annual air show. People from all over Europe attended, but the majority of those enjoying the spectacle were Germans, many from the local area. It was estimated that about 300,000 people were wandering around the exhibits from air forces all over the world, and lined up along the crowd line, watching the displays for which the Ramstein Air Show was famous. In a time when Germany was still divided, some 43 years after the end of the war, with NATO forces in the West and Soviets in the East, it was a moment when Americans and West Germans could come closer together, giving everyone a taste of burgers, fries and American ice cream. The display that year included many flypaths of NATO aircraft and display teams such as the Assas de Portugal and the Patrouille de France, but the best and most impressive display was brought on last as a suitable end to a wonderful day's flying, the Italian aerobatic display team, the Frecchi Tricolori. The Italian Air Force team was formed in 1961 and by 1988 they were flying the M. Mackie MB339 advanced jet trainer. The Italian team were famed for some of the most daring formation manoeuvres on the display circuit, and they were keenly awaited. In the crowd were families, aviation enthusiasts, politicians and military personnel from all over, but many were just there to enjoy an inexpensive day out in the sun. A visitor from Holland said, At that time, plane spotting was still a really exciting thing. In the midst of the Cold War, many countries completely forbade the photography of aircraft. Here in Ranstein, however, you could do it officially during the air show and see aircraft close by, which you could otherwise hardly ever see. We were with around 200 spotters who had travelled to Germany specifically for this event. At 20 to 4 in the afternoon, the 10 aircraft of the Frecchi Tricolori lifted off to start their show. It went well, with the crowd enjoying the spectacle, and each manoeuvre getting oohs and ahs from the audience, particularly the most densely packed area at the centre of the display line, where the biggest crowd was. After several minutes of what was a great performance, the team started one of the most impressive parts of their display, the pierced heart. The section downwards roll in the sky, the shape of a heart. That shows our love for all of you. The love that we built all over the world. The item started with the whole team running in towards the centre of the crowd in a single formation. As they approached the crowd line, they pulled up into the vertical with their smoke on. Five aircraft split from the formation and performed a quarter turn away, completing a loop but now parallel to the crowd line. The other half of the formation, four aircraft, 
performed a mirror image of the same manoeuvre, and the number 10 aircraft, now a singleton, continued to loop away from the crowd. The team had now split into three separate entities. The five ship and the four ship had pulled up, turned away from each other, and were now looping down and coming at each other head-on, aiming to cross at crowd centre, with their smoke trails leaving the distinct outline of a heart, which would be completed as they crossed at the bottom. It was the singleton's job to finish the gesture by piercing the heart with an arrow made of smoke. To do this, Lieutenant Colonel Ivo Nuttarelli had to complete his loop, the first half of which was away from the crowd, by pulling through towards the crowd, and then pulling up to fly through the iconic shape made by his colleagues in front of him. It was a spectacular visual display, and Nuttarelli had performed it hundreds of times before without mishap. With over 4,000 hours of military flying behind him, Nuttarelli was an experienced and capable pilot, but this day he made a small but tragic error. Perhaps in his mind he was remembering what had occurred during the dress rehearsal that he flew the previous day. During his loop he had inadvertently flown into cloud and delayed his pull-through, resulting in a late arrival to pierce the heart about seven to eight seconds after the main formation, instead of the planned three to five seconds. There was little doubt that he was attempting to adjust his speed to get the correct separation by pulling the power back and putting out his air brakes as he completed his loop. Luttarelli bottomed out of his pull-through at barely a 100 feet from the ground and about 600 feet from the crossing formations in front of him, way too close. He tried to pull his aircraft up and over them, but there was no room left, and although he started to climb, it was too late. Many in the crowd gasped as they had already realised what was unfolding. His death was filmed by dozens of cameras amongst the onlookers in front of him as he struck the fuselage of Pony One, the leader of the team. The front of Naturelli's aircraft disintegrated in a shower of debris and he was killed instantly in the collision. Pony One's Ermaki, crippled by the massive impact, spiralled out of control to the left, striking his number two before the pilot abandoned the aircraft, sadly too low for a successful ejection, and he died when he hit the runway before his parachute had deployed. Pony two crashed beside the runway, and the pilot also died in the huge fireball. Within a split second, the team had lost three pilots, but this was only the start of the tragedy. By arranging this crossing manoeuvre to occur in front of the audience, with Nuttarelli's aircraft aimed towards crowd centre, the unthinkable was about to happen. The remains of Pony 10 would continue on a ballistic trajectory across the runway, completely out of control and in flames, on a path that would carry it into hundreds of innocent watchers, who up to that moment had been enjoying a marvellous day out.
The wreckage hit the ground just in front of the spectator stands, exploding in a fireball and destroying a police car parked beside the fence that defined the active runway area. The plane continued cartwheeling for a distance before picking up a barbed wire fence and crossing a road, then slamming into the crowd and a parked ice cream van. A huge fireball of burning aviation fuel spread across hundreds of people there and billowed high into the sky. The barbed wire fence, dragged by the wreckage into those at the front of the crowd, had already killed many, but jagged pieces of debris from the aircraft were thrown indiscriminately into the host of onlookers like shrapnel and would kill more. The fire, however, would cause the most casualties. In the words of a survivor, after the impact and the explosions, there was dead silence for a few seconds. Everyone stared at the inferno, no one moved. Only then panic broke out. People screamed and ran away in all directions. My friends and I started to run as well. After a few meters, I realized that running away actually didn't help as everything was already over. So I stopped and tried to orientate myself. In front of me, a huge black cloud of smoke rose into the sky and there was an extreme smell of burned flesh in the air. Even after many months, I noticed this smell in my nose and I cannot forget it. I walked past charred people as if being in a trance. Many had burns all over the body and screamed, while others were silently sitting on the ground, staring straight ahead. Another recalled, An unimaginable heat seized me, and I thought I was going to die now. In front of me a wing, or at least a large part of it, passed by and shaved everything down. A man was thrown away like being fired from a catapult. Others disappeared in a wall of fire. An incredible pressure pushed glowing hot air into my lungs and then suddenly there was no air left to breathe anymore. I looked down to see if I was also terribly burned or lacerated. I was not. Now for the first time I consciously became aware of the stench in the air. It was a mixture of burned meat, kerosene, fresh blood and metal. Unforgettable. Terrible screams came from all over. I saw people wandering around who were charred black or snow white as if powdered with ashes. Everywhere there were people or ripped off body parts lying around. The shapes that were lying on the ground were so melted that I was not even able to tell if it was a man or a woman. A third witness who was injured when panic broke out remembered at this moment the aircraft must have impacted now I managed to get up and run away from it. I was just able to flee behind a container. I do not know until today how I got there, since at that moment the fireball went over us. The container behind which I stood saved my life. The heat was indescribable, and I thought that I would burn to death. The heat was so immense that all the oxygen in the air was gone and I could not breathe what was happening behind me I could only guess because I knew that the aircraft had crashed into the crowd directly behind me. What I saw when I came from behind the container was indescribable. Everywhere there were burned people. Some ran around and burned. 
with many of them the skin hung from their body. What happened next depends very much on your point of view and expectations following a disaster of this magnitude where tens of people have been killed and hundreds have been badly injured. It was a major catastrophe. An Austrian reporter has commented at length that amateuristic emergency management cost human lives and that the rescue efforts on the ground could hardly have been more chaotic. He goes on to claim that only a handful of medically trained German forces were on site as they had not expected a disaster of this magnitude and therefore had not compiled a corresponding emergency concept. And whilst these helpers were left on their own, the Americans used their long obsolete Vietnam strategy in the barely existing care of the injured, which consisted of load and go. Specifically, this meant nothing more than putting injured people on trucks, in buses and flatbed trucks, and then moving them as quickly as possible to the nearest hospital, a fatal mistake. In stark contrast, an independent assessment by the RAS Institute of Aviation Medicine tells us that plans were made for the possibility of mass casualties, and the base disaster plan had been revised in February of that year. What's more, it had been exercised twice in the six months prior to the accident. It was available in checklist form to a dedicated disaster response team situated in a mobile command post at the air show and to team leaders at each medical location. In addition, full cooperation and support was elicited from both the German Red Cross and the nearby Landstuhl Army Regional Medical Centre. There were a total of 15 doctors and 163 paramedical personnel on duty for Flugtag. All the doctors were on the airfield except for two at the base clinic. A total of 15 ambulances were standing by at the four medical aid stations and a dedicated UH-60 Black Hawk Kazovac helicopter, part of a disaster response team, was located on the south side of the runway. Unfortunately, it was this Black Hawk that was destroyed and the pilot killed by falling aircraft debris. However, there was an abundance of helicopters at Ramstein. The first was airborne within three minutes of the impact. It was a UH-1 Huey, which had been on standby. Two other helicopters were airborne in the next ten minutes, these were soon joined by a Black Hawk from Landstuhl Medical Center, a Royal Air Force Puma, and German civilian emergency helicopters. By the end of the day, 18 military and civilian helicopters had evacuated hundreds of casualties, many flying several return flights. The survivors were triaged, treated, and evacuated from Randstein within 96 minutes. The speed and efficiency of this evacuation was a result of prior planning, thorough training, medical reinforcement, cooperation with other agencies and the availability of an abundance of vehicles for both road and air evacuation. There was undoubtedly a difference in the approach of the German and American medical teams. The German approach was to treat and stabilise the injured at the scene, 
whereas the American response was to move the casualties as rapidly as possible to one of the many local medical facilities. However, this influx of casualties did cause some problems as some hospitals were overwhelmed, but of the 530 patients who were seen and treated, 363 were admitted to 21 medical facilities in the first hours. Over the next few days, many of these patients were further transported to 46 medical facilities throughout Europe and in the USA. Mention must also be made of the bravery of individual members of the public who, instead of running away from the fire, ran into it to save children, put out the flames on burning people, and helped to comfort strangers who were terribly injured. The final death toll came to 70, and 346 were seriously injured. A sadly high proportion were children who had been moved to the front of the crowd so that they would have a good view of the show. Hundreds more had minor injuries, and the mental scars of those who witnessed the event numbered in thousands. The seven damaged but still airworthy aircraft of the Frecky Chocolori still flying, we grouped and landed on the nearby airbase Sembach. Over the following months, the Italian authorities considered disbanding the formation team, but despite the accident being put down to pilot error, they continued to fly. Until 2002, this was the worst air show disaster in history and for a while air shows in Germany were banned. Of note, the previous year when the team had displayed in the USA, the FAA did not give authorization for the pierced heart maneuver. I find it tragic that a maneuver designed to show the team's love for their audience should have unwittingly caused such a disaster. In an interview only two months before he would die in the crash, Lieutenant Colonel Natarelli said, Every day when I fly, I'm never happy about my job, what I did in the plane. And every day I think I can do better. I think you do something uh, very close to the limits, your limits and plane's limits, but I don't think I, I do something dangerous. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com.